Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid says oil makes us sick. Barack Obama is pushing alternative energy sources. We'll discuss the cost, and we'll ask a constitutional scholar what the Heller Second Amendment decision signals about the Constitution, the courts, and other gun restrictions. Also, we'll update you on this year's Paris fashions for men. This is Jerry Johnson Live from Crystal College. Join us as we look at today's news from the Christian worldview for Christ and culture. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. I have a dream. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. We will not tire, we will not falter, and we will not fail. Welcome to Jerry Johnson Live. For the next hour, this is your place for relevant discussion of topics in the news and in our culture from a Christian perspective. Later in the show, we'll open the toll-free lines for your questions and comments. You may also email us at talk at jerryjohnsonlive.com. Now, here is Penna Dexter. Coal makes us sick. Oil makes us sick. It's global warming. It's ruining our country. It's ruining our world. That's Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, and of course, uh, that is a YouTube hit right now. It's making the rounds. Uh, he appeared on a Fox News business segment. And some people might say it's not really fair to cut out that part of the segment and highlight it and play it over and over again and make fun of it. But ladies and gentlemen, it's an unfair statement to say that coal makes us sick and oil makes us sick. Certainly we do deal with uh, the pollution that comes from energy use. It's something we've been dealing with and we've been innovating and providing technology to do. But when you think about coal and you think about oil and the things they provide, they allow us to have power for our industry. They allow us to cool and heat our homes and cook our meals so that we can survive. They allow us to move around and have transportation. And certainly the technology that's been innovated in the past couple of decades has allowed us to be cleaner and cleaner about the way we use coal and oil and to just stand there on television to say coal and oil are making us sick is really not fair and that's why it's being played and that's why people are laughing and making fun of it and ladies and gentlemen uh, I'm Penna Dexter thanks for joining me today uh, there is certainly going to be a debate about energy in this presidential campaign it's shaping up to be a major issue higher gas prices are really changing the way people view energy exploration. Here's a report from Jerry Bodlander in Washington. $4 gas has more people saying that expanding oil drilling and building new power plants is a higher priority than conserving energy. A new Pew Research Center poll found nearly half of those surveyed support greater energy development. That's a double-digit jump from the 35 percent that felt that way in February. The survey found the shift toward energy development was across the political spectrum and included Democrats, liberals, and independents. Jerry Bodlander, Washington. In the Wall Street Journal on the editorial uh, page today, there's a piece by Martin Feldstein. He's a Harvard professor. He was also in the Reagan White House. And it's entitled, We Can Lower Oil Prices Now. It talks about how pol certain policy changes right now could affect even current prices 
of oil. Uh, here's energy analyst Jim Ritterbush. He says that Mideast tensions are actually influencing oil traders to speculate about possible supply disruptions. In today's trade, uh, we do have some uh, insertion of uh, geopolitical risk premium due to uh, Israeli-Iran uh, uh, rhetoric. There's so much uh, that goes into the price of oil and the way speculators uh, place a price on this commodity. And, of course, now the price of oil is affecting the price of lots of other things, uh, including food. But there is a partisan debate going on uh, regarding drilling for oil. It's really been heating up lately. The candidates have been talking about it. We've been talking about it on this program. Uh, Radio programs, television programs across the nation have been discussing it. Senator McCain, of course, has changed his position on domestic drilling, not in Anwar in Alaska, but offshore drilling. He says we've just got to do it now. And uh, we're really facing these higher prices. It's just forcing the issue. Uh, Barack Obama wants to fund alternative sources of energy, uh, but uh, many of these have not been proven to be affordable. We're going to talk about this a little bit later with Dallas businessman and philanthropist Richard Collins. He'll join us to discuss Barack Obama's energy position, possibly problem. Uh, we may also get to his taxing position and his Iraq position. Uh, and also later in the program, the Supreme Court, of course, as you know, in the Heller decision versus the Washington, D.C., handed down last week a really a decision that affirmed an individual right to keep and bear arms. Specifically, that case dealt with Washington, D.C.'s very strict law, a ban on handguns in the home. Uh, good legal scholarship was crucial to this decision, which the court really for the first time interpreted the Second Amendment. And one of those scholars is going to join us today. He is Stephen Hallbrook, and his book is The Founder's Second Amendment, Origins of the Right to Bear Arms. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to talk about that later. Also, in the fourth segment, I'm going to try to get to this. Uh, Michelle Obama has been talking to homosexual groups about her husband's position on their issues. We've got a lot of that sound, so we will get to that a little bit later. But uh, I want to get to this Harris poll uh, on gun rights, if I can find it in my stack of stuff here. Uh, it's um, It was on Breitbart last week. It says, Second Amendment Supreme Court ruling matches with public opinion from the Harris poll. And uh, this just kind of uh, really reiterates that the Supreme Court uh, decision really is matched pretty much by public opinion. And uh, the poll found that by a margin of over two to one, U.S. adults agree with the Supreme Court. They believe that the Second Amendment supports an individual's right to bear arms. And uh, in this segment, we've got a little time, so we're going to let you weigh in on this issue. Do you agree that the Second Amendment supports an individual's right to bear arms? I'll take your calls on that, and then we can report uh, your thoughts and also this Harris poll, discuss it with our guest later in the program, uh, Stephen Hallbrook. Uh, But when this Harris poll showed wording from the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution to the sample uh, and asked whether U.S. adults think the Second Amendment supports an individual's right to bear arms or a state's right to form a militia. This was the core of the case that was decided last week. By 41% to 17%, which is a two-to-one plurality, people believe that the Second Amendment supports an individual's right to bear arms, so they agree with the Supreme Court. And very interestingly, almost 3 in 10, 29%, 
feel that the Second Amendment supports uh, both a militia and the individual right to seek to keep and bear arms. And uh, many people, as they discuss and editorialize on the Supreme Court's Heller decision last week, are saying that this really was a decision for individual rights and that this court has been for individual rights and especially the swing uh, justice, Anthony Kennedy. Well, another uh, another outcome of this poll, by political party affiliation, Republicans by 51 percent to 9 percent, believe the Second Amendment supports an individual's right to bear arms. Democrats also agree with this, but theirs is a little bit closer, 41% to 22%. And, of course, as we've seen, both candidates have affirmed this decision. Barack Obama had to really jump through some hoops to do so because of some of his earlier positions on gun control. But even though the U.S. Supreme Court has issued this decision, the debate over guns in this country is far from over. While Americans are more likely to believe that the Second Amendment does protect this right of an individual to bear arms, they also favor stricter gun control. So we're going to talk about a lot of this with Stephen Hallbrook later in the program. But if you'd like to weigh in on whether or not you think that this is what the Second Amendment does, did the Supreme Court get it right? Does the Second Amendment mean that an individual has a right to bear arms uh, give us a call. 800-881-9270 is our number. I also want to get to uh, what's going on overseas because uh, in some cases it affects us, although I'm not so sure about this one. But uh, they're showing on the runways of Paris uh, the fashions for men. The big designing houses have got their male fashions out there. And uh the article that I am again reading off of Breitbart today, Men's Fashion Gets a Feminine Touch at the Paris Shows. Boy, does it. The notion of wardrobe androgyny, says the article, was the fitting theme of Yves Saint Laurent men's collection. This is the house that kicked off the just-ended Paris men's shows where men's fashion won a feminine touch. And at Yves Saint Laurent, there's a designer there. His name is Stefano Pilotti. And he used quotations from Plato to explain why he combined female detailing with a masculine silhouette. I've seen some of these pictures. He said, the original human nature was not like the present. The sexes were not two as they are now. And that's the reason why he's got all these feminine clothes for men. The question I've got is, well, where did all these people come from then if the sexes were not two as they are now? I think if you look at your Bible and the book of Genesis, you'll see that there's something different there. I think this uh, designer doesn't quite have it right. But Pilates underscored the opinion uh, or the union of genders, sort of the uh, androgynous, uh, I guess, mindset today with a line for men made in fabrics normally worn by women, by women, crepe de chine. This is very light. Organza, uh, silk voile, all or voile, all fabrics which float around and rather than fall down like a men's suit would. Uh, it's really sort of politically correct fashion because the article says, in an era obsessed with global warming and sustainable development, the 44 uh, spring-summer 2009 collections displayed at this four-day men's fashion show (laughs) ending Sunday featured these light, airy, see-through linens and soft and feathery cottons, sort of environmentally friendly clothes, uh, bright colors, 
more often the domain of women's wear also figured very strong. And uh, while this was happening, there were gay pride marches taking place across Europe, and pink was very popular in Paris. Now, Louis Vuitton, which is a house uh, with a predominantly masculine view of the world, also chose the color pink. Uh, They had it in their shorts and their pants and even in their shoes. Um, There was a huge pink sale, sort of a backdrop uh, in one of the uh, runways. And another desire, a designer from Emmanuel Ungaro, this designer's name is Frank Beauclay, he said that fuchsia, which is sort of a bright, bright pink with a little bit of orange in it, was uh, one of the house's signature colors, and he was using it uh, in this male fashion show. He said, I wanted a gay, fresh style. I don't think he meant homosexual, but... uh, That's sort of where it's going. Uh, And uh, he said he wanted a Paris 60s look of hip-hugging tight-thighed pants, checkered suits, and the odd item in day-glow orange, bright blue or purple. These are some bright, bright colors, ladies and gentlemen. Just try to picture it in your mind if you can. And then uh, Givenchy, which is a housewoman's designer, also for men, went for shocking pink, He threw out a suit with socks, a shirt, and shoes in pink, and uh, sort of a mingling of masculine and feminine with lace shirts over tattooed skin and kinky leather shorts worn with cropped leggings. I think you've heard enough about what's going on on the runways of Paris and around the world. And later in the program, we will talk about what's going on here in the presidential campaign in uh, basically the advancing homosexual agenda. It is a campaign issue in this election. And ladies and gentlemen, I don't think you ought to forget it. Well, Barack Obama is on the campaign trail today, and he is agreeing with President Bush on something. He says he wants to expand President Bush's faith-based programs, And he really wants it to be a partnership between private charity and public poverty alleviation. Uh, We've been talking a lot lately about uh, these candidates, of course, and their appeal to Christians. He believes this is one way to appeal to Christians. Well, we're going to discuss some other issues in the next segment, really campaign issues. We're going to get a little bit away this time from what the faith positions of the candidates are, how they interpret the Bible, because uh, we've done enough of that, I think, uh, at least for the time being. But we're going to talk about what are the candidates' positions on energy, on drilling, on taxes? How is it going to affect your pocketbook? What about the war in Iraq? What about national security? Richard Collins has a lot of thoughts and information on this, and he'll join us next. Stay with us for more of Jerry Johnson Live. I thought my life was too busy for me to get a master's degree. But Criswell College makes it easy. Did you know that you can now get a Master of Divinity degree in just one day a week? If I can fit this into my schedule, I know you can too. Come to Criswell College on Mondays and increase your education for more effective ministry. With concentrations in pastoral ministry, evangelism, Jewish studies, counseling, philosophy, and more, you can build your personal ministry with a master's degree or go on to get your doctorate. You'll study with some of the most distinguished professors in the nation and get plenty of hands-on experience outside the classroom. All it takes is one day a week. Come join me and my friends on the Criswell College campus and get your Master of Divinity degree. One day, one place. The new MDiv Monday program at Criswell College. 
Call us at 800-899-0012 or check us out at criswell.edu. Invest in God's kingdom and in yourself through the Criswell College. See us on the web at criswell.edu. That's criswell.edu. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. We talk about cost competitiveness, but the one thing we fail to talk about is those costs that you don't see on the bottom line. That is, coal makes us sick. Oil makes us sick. It's global warming. It's ruining our country. It's ruining our world. We've got to stop using fossil fuel. We have, for generations, taken it out of the earth, carbon out of the earth, and put it in the atmosphere, and it's making us all sick. It's such an irresponsible statement, and uh, this is just one of the issues that's being bantied about along the presidential campaign. Of course, that was Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. But energy is a big issue in presidential politics. And as I mentioned earlier, Republican candidate John McCain has actually changed his position on drilling in the United States uh, offshore because he understands that we've got to do something to get some energy independence. Barack Obama says no drilling. Uh, We need alternative energy sources, and we've got to put our money into those. With us to discuss this and other campaign issues is uh, Dallas businessman and philanthropist Richard Collins. Uh, He had a blog, sort of a website, called StopHerNow.com about Hillary. And then when Hillary dropped out of the race, the name changed to Stop Him Now. And, Richard, thank you so much for joining me. Happy to be here. Well, I'm so glad to have you. Uh, Why did you think it was important to stop her now? Well, uh, Hillary Clinton is a wrong for America. The ideas that she's espoused and believes uh, are dangerous. And I thought that uh, she was the the, uh, certain Democratic nominee, like everybody else did about a year ago. And, boy, were we mistaken. And so the uh, Democrats, as they're prone to do sometimes, they flirt with disaster. And so they've, they've, it appears they're going to nominate this obscure guy who's not qualified to be the mayor of Buffalo, New York, much less to be the president of the United States. Is there anything more important about stopping him now than it was to stop her now? Uh, well, he, uh, Hillary is smart. Um, and this guy is uh, Hillary smart and experienced and been around the halls of power for a long time. She may be wrong on a lot of issues, but she's a savvy politician. This guy is inexperienced and is is untested, and that's a recipe for danger when the philosophy that he believes in and he's espoused is the most liberal of any member of the United States Senate. All right. One of the positions that he's espoused does seem naive to me, and that has to do with uh, emphasizing alternative energy energy sources, which is certainly good to emphasize, and we need to continue to develop those. But there hasn't been a breakthrough that's cost effective. Let's go now to uh, just a discussion of uh, John McCain, because he finally... Uh, turned around, pushed for opening restrictions on offshore uh, offshore drilling. He criticized Barack Obama for calling for this windfall profits tax on oil companies. And let's just go to that report now. If the plan sounds familiar, it's because that was President Jimmy Carter's big idea, too. Windfall profits tax is supposed to do something about oil prices? Well, it's it's basically just punishing the oil companies. And what uh, Obama is doing is he's pandering to the Democratic left uh, and the green community that uh, is is basically opposed to uh, 
uh, the combustion engine and all that sort of stuff. And the theme of, of the green community is that they're anti-growth and anti-creating jobs and economic opportunity and stuff like that. If that becomes the issue, they're dead. Uh, now, we're all green. I'm for cleaner uh, fuels and, and, and cleaner and more efficient cars and a, and a cleaner way for us to uh, continue to grow and build our economies and build a future for our children. And so uh, they're not offering any solutions, but sometimes in politics people vote against and not for. And so uh, uh, talking about alternative fuels is a great idea, but alternative fuels are not going to come down the pipeline for another 10 years. We need uh, clean coal. We, we're sitting on massive amounts of coal, of coal reserves in the United States, more than Saudi Arabia has in oil. We need nuclear fuel, uh, but the Greens are opposed, to, and, the, and, the, and the Liberals in the Democratic Party are opposed to nuclear power plants because they're unsafe. And uh, and we need the more natural gas. Uh, the natural gas is cheap, it's clean, and it's domestic. So. Uh, and we need to have a cleaner, uh, um, uh, cleaner uh, vehicles. And Detroit has met, met that message over the years. We just have twice as many cars on the road as we did 15 years ago. My guest is Richard Collins. Uh, he is from Texas, and he's very active in our community here in the Dallas area. He's a businessman. He's very interested in the future of our country, and that's why we're talking about these issues right now. And, Richard, you know, I'm from Los Angeles, and I remember uh, when I was a little girl, I lived in Pasadena, and Pasadena is up against some mountains. It's one of the mountains. It's one of the smoggiest places in um, that basin. My parents moved us to the beach when I was nine because they just couldn't stand the smog anymore. Well, I go out there now, and it's just much cleaner than it used to be. You mentioned that we've we've got cleaner technology and that we've made some progress. We have, haven't we? We have made progress. Uh, uh, but the truth of the matter is there's twice as many cars on the road, so the cars now are dramatically cleaner than they were 20 years ago. So we've made a lot of progress, and but there's much to be done. So you have to balance... Uh, progress uh, in, in environmental issues with what keeps, uh, keeps the American economy growing. The reason for the high oil prices and high energy prices today is the world produces about 85 or 86 million barrels of oil a day, and there's a demand for 86 or 87 million barrels of oil a day. So that uh, 50, uh, 10 years ago, uh, China and India were were, were requiring about twenty uh, percent of what of uh, the uh, oil that they're using right now. So that's pushed prices. That's pushed demand up. When you push up demand, it puts pushes up supplies. It pushes up price. There's no line that uh, the, when uh, you get into a, a supply demand situation like it is, the price will rise until it kills demand. And uh, and so we're, by the way, we're starting to see that right now. The gasoline usage for the last month was 2.7% less than it was last year. And so we're all thinking, what can I do besides drive my car? My own view is I think that oil prices have probably peaked or or, are pretty close to it. All right. We uh, depend on the Middle East for a lot of our oil. And uh, in the news today, OPEC has concerns about demand. And uh, they're afraid that demand might not stand up enough to justify investment to boost oil production. And then the Saudi king is urging consumers just to get used to high oil prices. So that just points up, Richard, the concern uh, of the United States. If we want to have enough energy to meet our needs until we can get these alternative uh, solutions to maybe take up more of our energy consumption. Until we can do that, we're just going to need oil, and we've got to be getting it 
in a way that where we know we can get it at a decent price, correct? Well, we should be drilling um, everywhere that uh, we can in the United States because it is here. It uh, helps the balance of payments problem, and it's secure. Uh, if uh, a terrorist uh, destroys a tanker in the wrong uh, part of the Persian Gulf near the Straits of Umas, then uh, we could have a huge economic crisis uh, in the world because it would block uh, oil from being uh, shipped through those straits. So uh, oil is here to stay for a long time. Uh, the uh, Saudis and all the OPEC guys will pander to the American press and say, well, we want to expand production and all this kind of stuff. If they could, they would. They're making uh, huge profits now that they never dreamed of, and so they're rolling in money. And as a result, uh, they're going to say things to make us feel good, but they're, they're going to keep the price up as high as they can, as long as they can. Richard, why does Barack Obama oppose drilling? I mean, it just seems to make good common sense. Uh, the uh, Democratic left, the environmental communities opposed to uh, drilling, they have no alternative other than alternative fuels, and that sounds good, but, I mean, that's just silly. Uh, my good friend Boone Pickens has proposed uh, building some wind energy uh, turbines uh, in West Texas, and that's a great thing, but that's just the start of a lot of things we need to do. And we need to rethink our overall energy policy, but understand that oil is going to be a major part of it for the next 15 or 20 years and build all the things that I've just mentioned. Richard, uh, let's move to national security because these are all related. And you've just mentioned the left and uh, the fact that Barack Obama has to please them. Uh, We've got such good news coming out of Iraq now. The political situation is getting better. The security situation is better. Casualties are way down. And, uh, you know, you're beginning to see the stories even in the mainstream media. It puts Barack Obama in a tough position. Is he going to tack now to the center on Iraq? Uh, what he's going to do, is that yes, he is going to move to the center. He'll be center-left. Uh, but with Obama, everything he says he can't believe. So when he first got in the race, what caused him to explode on the national scene was he was the only candidate that didn't vote, uh, the only serious candidate that didn't vote for the war. And he was opposed to it for the beginning, and he could talk about that he was the only one. And then he was an articulate man. He didn't wear his American flag pin. I think that was a message to the anti-war left that he was one of them, and he was going to pull the boys out of Iraq right away as soon as he got elected. And now he's put it on. Of course. He's put it on, and he said, well, we're going to have to stay in for a little while, blah, blah, blah. Uh, whatever this guy says is not believable because it is, it, he believes in nothing except getting elected. He spent his whole political career running for something and, and has no legislative achievements to uh, point to as to why, what his success has been. So um, if, he, if he does get elected, and you have to rate the race basically a 50-50 race right now, uh, the media is going to cut this guy every bit of slack that, that they can. Uh, and, uh, but he will, he will consistently avoid being uh, in the public uh, in front with press conferences and things like that as much as he can. And they're going to ask him powder puff, powder puff questions. And as long as they do that, uh, he can look awfully suave, sophisticated, and good. It's going to be up to some of the alternative media, I think, to highlight some of these positions. And that's what you're doing at StopHimNow.com. Richard Collins, I'm going to have to have you back to talk about taxes and how much Barack Obama is going to cost folks. But thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. 
Ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's go now to the issue of gun rights. The most momentous decision in the Supreme Court's term was the D.C. versus Heller decision, and it really interpreted the Second Amendment. Joining us to discuss it, Stephen Hallbrook. He's written the book Second Amendment, Origins of the Right to Bear Arms. Stay with us for that. Listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. Even if the language of keeping and bearing arms were ambiguous, the amendment's first clause confirms that the right is militia related. It's a simple well, meaning. If you're right, Mr. Dellinger, uh, it's certainly an odd way in the Second Amendment to phrase the operative provision. If it is limited to state militias, why would they say the right of the people? This was the nub of the argument that culminated in the 5-4 decision last week uh, by the United States Supreme Court in D.C. versus Heller. And it was really uh, one of the, actually the first time the Supreme Court had interpreted the Second Amendment, this whole idea that the Second Amendment applies to the individual right to bear arms as well as a militia. With us to discuss this and also uh, the precarious state of the United States Supreme Court and how it's very important in this election is Stephen Hallbrook. And uh, Stephen Hallbrook is uh, the author of a new book which has to do with what the founders uh, meant their original intent in writing the Second Amendment to the Bill of Rights. His book is The Founders' Second Amendment, Origins of the Right to Bear Arms. He's a research fellow with the Independent Institute, and he's won three cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. Mr. Hallbrook, thank you very much for joining me. I'm happy to be on the show. All right, tell me uh, what the Supreme Court case was about, what it decided about the Second Amendment. Well, I was in the Supreme Court when those statements were made that you just played. The first one was by Walter Dillinger arguing for D.C., and they contended that the Second Amendment basically doesn't mean anything today and that even though it refers to the right of the people to keep and bear arms, that uh, that really means the power of states to maintain militias and alternatively that you can only have a gun if you're in a militia, which is a pretty crazy argument. You don't have a right to do anything if you're in a military force. You're commanded as to what to do. Um, But anyway, the Supreme Court, as you mentioned, has been very remiss in deciding any cases on the Second Amendment. This was a challenge to the District of Columbia's absolute gun ban. It bans possession of any handgun, no matter how law-abiding you are. And um, so the the case worked its way up, and uh, Dick Heller, who's party of the case, is an armed security guard by day. He, He guards federal judges. And at night, he's not trusted to be uh, a gun owner. He might be become a raving maniac because of the implication. There's a lot of people in the District of Columbia who live in high-crime areas, and they need guns for self-protection. So uh, the, the case got it right. It was a very slim margin, five to four. And um, uh, the opinion by Justice Scalia holds solidly that uh, the Second Amendment guarantees an individual right to possess a handgun in your own home for self-defense. Stephen Hallbrook is with me. Uh, I have a couple of questions about this. First of all, will the ruling apply also? I mean, this was D.C., and this was handguns. Is this going to, first of all, be expanded, this right to own a gun, do you think? And also, will it apply to states and other municipalities? 
Well, we're trying to make that happen right now. Um, I'm counsel for the National Rifle Association. We just filed a lawsuit against the city of Chicago and some of the suburbs there. And um, it's our contention that the Second Amendment does apply to the states through the 14th Amendment. The Supreme Court has held most Bill of Rights guarantees to apply to the states through the 14th Amendment. Uh, It has not decided the Second Amendment, but the opinion itself has a lot of information uh, on the intent of the 14th Amendment, which was adopted in 1868, to apply the right to bear arms uh, against states. So... Uh, Your second question had to do with um, the fact that this was handguns, and there are bans on rifles in various places. Um, They call them assault weapons, and they're they're not assault weapons. That's a fully automatic machine gun, but they use the term assault weapon pejoratively. And um, it, it would not surprise me if there would be litigation against those bans as well. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest is Stephen Hallbrook, and his book is The Founder's Second Amendment, Origins of the Right to Bear Arms. And Stephen, uh, I want to get to your book, because I think it's interesting for folks who uh, care about this issue, and we all should. Uh, But I also want to open up the phones for people if they would like to ask you questions about gun rights. Uh, 800-881-9270 is the number. And, you know, some questions might have to do with uh, certain kinds of guns or what's next or uh, perhaps uh, gun shows and restrictions there. Uh, What about um, just uh, the uh, licenses of those who sell guns, those who work in gun shops, things like that. Right. But I want to ask you about your book because what did you try to do in this book? It's sort of a history book, isn't it? Well, it's history. Um, I think it's uh, there's a very exciting phase of this history, which is the fact that th- the way this right got enshrined in our Bill of Rights was because the British tried to take the colonists' guns away so they could, would be defenseless. And the first one-third of the book is about that, and, it, and it's a very action-packed <laughs> era of our history. Uh, what happened was that in 1768, the Redcoats came to Boston to occupy the town, and um, the colonists feared that they would be disarmed and that their uh, patriotic leaders would be sent to England for trial without jury of their peers. And you can see the escalation from that point. Uh, we have the Boston Massacre, the Boston Tea Party, and on up to Lexington and Concord when the, the colonists basically beat the British back who were trying to seize arms. And at that time the British decreed a ban on firearms by all inhabitants in the city of Boston, and uh, the citizens were told that if they would just turn their guns in, their names would be kept, and um, they'd be kept safe. And so they did that, and and all of a sudden, here come the British soldiers and seized the guns, and nobody got any of them back. And that led to a great um, displeasure on the part of the Continental Congress, which mentioned that incident in its uh, declaration of causes of taking up arms against the British. Stephen Hallbrook is my guest. Now, a lot of people uh, who believe that guns should be restricted uh, with some pretty strong laws say that in, for instance, Washington, D.C., people just ought to rely on the police for protection from criminals. They ought to call 911. Uh, why is that not a good argument? Well, uh, first of all, this law was passed in 1976, and since that time, D.C. has been the murder capital of our country. And if you want to call 911, you're, you're, I mean, you should do that if possible, but you're taking your chances. There was a famous case in D.C. 
where three women were broken into and held as hostages in their own homes for several days, at which time they were brutally raped and robbed. And they called 911 several times, and the police came around and knocked on the door, and not, not surprisingly, nobody answered the door. And uh, when they finally got out of their predicament, they sued the D.C. government, and, and the court held that there's no duty of the police to protect any person in particular. Um, and, of course, the cop on the beat will tell you that. They cannot be everywhere at once, and we wouldn't want to live in a police state where they were everywhere at once. So, um, yeah, the police have a role to play, but on the other hand, in the first instance, if you want to preserve your life, you have to have measures to do that. And, of course, you know, a lot. Of, I've talked to a European friend recently that just couldn't understand Texas and America and how much we love our guns, but it really has to do with the fact that we've learned in this country that often if you want to get something done, you do it yourself, right? Right. It's part of our individualism and, and personal liberties that we, we have. Uh, if you go back to the time of our founding, James Madison wrote in the Federalist Papers that in Europe the monarchies are afraid to trust the people with arms because they they would mean their downfall. And he said that in America, uh, Americans are armed, and, and that's why we won't have tyranny. If there was a standing army that tried to create a tyranny, that the citizenry would take action and um, not let it happen. Speaking of tyranny and the power of a, gover- uh, a government, we've spent a lot of this program today talking about the presidential election, and you also mentioned that you're working on uh, making some changes in the city of Chicago. And I know Barack Obama supported strong gun uh, restrictions in Chicago. He's tried to uh, support the Supreme Court decision in his rhetoric ever since it came down. But can you just kind of talk about where he stands and what you think uh, he might, how he might influence gun rights in America were he president? Well, if you go back to when he served in the Illinois legislature, um, one of the suburbs of Chicago named Wilmette, which is on our list of uh, places that the NRA is suing for a gun ban, uh, there was a man who, uh, whose house was broken into twice, and the second time uh, the family was present when this intruder came in, and uh, he he was successful in in wounding the person, and uh, so Will Met charged the man with um, illegal possession of a gun. So a law passed the Illinois legislature saying that if a if a locality bans guns, and you use it in self defense like that, they can't prosecute you. And guess who voted against that bill? Really, Obama. That's about as extreme as you can get. Right, and it's been one thing after another that he never saw a gun ban he didn't like. And he used to say he agreed with the D.C. gun ban. He only made this up, uh, that he agreed with the Supreme Court decision, because he realizes there's a significant uh, number of people in this country who either uh, they're hunters or gun owners or they they believe in the right to, to be gun owners. And um, the Democrats have found in, in previous elections, going back to 94, that, that it's a big losing issue. Bill Clinton was well, well aware of it and, and acknowledged it. Uh, you, you had the travesty of John Kerry going around with camouflage and, and going on a turkey hunt uh, for the cameras, and that, yeah. that didn't work. <laughs> Very quickly, uh, Stephen Holbrook, uh, what about McCain's position on guns? Well, it, it's a mixed... Um, uh, a mixed position. He has voted against. He voted against the federal assault weapon ban, but he's been pushing a bill for uh, background checks at gun shows. Uh, there already are background checks at gun shows where licensed dealers are doing the sales. But in this country, we have a tradition that private individuals can sell to each other mm-hmm. without 
the, uh, being accused of a federal felony for without, because you didn't do a background check, and that's been our our, our policy. And uh, so he's got a mixed record. Stephen Hallbrook, a great book. Uh, I highly recommend it if you want to understand the Founders' Second Amendment, the origins of the right to bear arms. And thank you so much for being with me. My pleasure to be on the show. Take care. You too. Ladies and gentlemen, as we grapple with the importance of the next election uh, to the courts, as this issue really shows us, and also to the social moral issues, the issue of gay marriage is front and center. We're going to talk about it next. I thought my life was too busy to get a master's degree, but Criswell College makes it easy. Did you know that you can now get a Master of Divinity degree in just one day a week? If I can fit this into my schedule, I know you can too. Come to Criswell College on Mondays and increase your education for more effective ministry. With concentrations in pastoral ministry, evangelism, Jewish studies, counseling, philosophy, and more, you can build your personal ministry with a master's degree or go on to get your doctorate. You'll study with some of the most distinguished professors in the nation and get plenty of hands-on experience outside the classroom. All it takes is one day a week. Come join me and my friends on the Crystal College campus and get your Master of Divinity degree. One day, one place. MDiv Monday at Crystal College. Call us at 800-899-0012 or check us out at Criswell.edu. That's Criswell.edu. Invest in God's kingdom and in yourself through the Criswell College. See us on the web at Criswell.edu. That's Criswell.edu. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. In 2004, after hearing from gay friends and supporters about the hurtful impact of DOMA, Barack went on record doing it during his U.S. Senate race calling for its complete repeal. That's Michelle Obama, the wife of Democratic presidential nominee Barack Obama, telling a crowd of homosexual activists last week that her husband wants to repeal DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act. She also said he wants to reverse the rule on homosexuals in the military. And uh, she drew parallels with homosexual advocacy, advocacy groups and the civil rights movement. And uh, we will have more from that speech uh, that she made to the Democrat National Committee's Gay and Lesbian Leadership Committee in New York City. And, you know, uh, John McCain went to speak to the Log Cabin Republicans, which is the gay group of Republicans. Uh, They like to center on economic issues. And I don't uh, have the audio from his time with them. I'm not sure it's even out there. Uh, But uh, most of the Republican candidates do go and speak with them. And uh, some of us in the pro-family movement get a little nervous because we wonder what's going to be promised. And uh, one uh, great conservative leader there in Washington, D.C., is asking the question, is the pro-family movement weakened? And uh, we are seeing uh, a lot of legislation that is coming before Congress as sort of in the pipeline uh, with regard to homosexual rights. ENDA, Employment Non-Discrimination Act, which was beat back last uh, session, a hate crimes bill. And uh, these things really uh, trample the rights of Christians and people who believe homosexuality is sinful because they force this agenda on those businesses, on churches, on organizations, and on 
people. Well, let's go back now to the speech that Michelle Obama made uh, before the Democrat Gay and Lesbian Leadership uh, Committee. And I do want to give you an opportunity to weigh in on this issue if you would like to. Uh, 800-881-9270. Are you concerned about these positions that Michelle Obama is espousing on behalf of of her husband? Uh, Here again is Michelle Obama. Because Barack is not new to the cause of the LGBT community, It has been a conviction of his career since he was first elected to public office. In his first year in the Illinois State Senate, Barack co-sponsored a bill amending the Illinois Human Rights Act to include protections of LGBT men and women. He worked on that bill for seven years, serving as the chief co-sponsor and lobbying his colleagues to reject the political expedience of homophobia and make LGBT equality a priority in our state. In 2004, his efforts paid off as that bill finally became law. If he really worked on that bill for seven years, that shows his commitment to the advancing homosexual agenda. He's spoken very little on the campaign trail about homosexual issues, but there is a position paper on his website, and it does say that he wants to fully repeal the Defense of Marriage Act and enact legislation that would ensure 1,100-plus federal legal rights and benefits currently provided on the basis of marital status to same-sex couples this is called civil unions. Some people call it domestic partnerships. And, uh, you know, he stopped short of saying he recognizes or supports same-sex marriage. But there are lots of code words in some of the things he says, and you'll hear this from Michelle Obama uh, in another one of these sound bites that show that uh, there would definitely down the line be support for same-sex marriage. And they've all said, uh, basically most of the Democrats and even some of the Republicans like Arnold Schwarzenegger have said that they support this decision in California to allow homosexual marriage in that state. And as we know and have talked about before on this program, that is going to spread. Well, you know, when she talks about and he talks about repealing DOMA, this has been the excuse that senators have used not to support a federal marriage amendment defining marriages between a man and a woman. They said most of the states have DOMAs, Defensive Marriage Acts, and we have a federal DOMA. But now they're saying they would like to repeal this. Well, here's Michelle Obama again uh, talking about uh, what she says uh, is her husband's low opinion of a marriage amendment to the Constitution. And as a U.S. senator, he voted to protect our Constitution from the stain of discrimination by voting against the federal marriage amendment. The federal marriage amendment, again, as I said, defined marriage as between one man and one woman in the United States Constitution once and for all. Of course, the Senate and the House are not composed in a way such that this could ever pass at this point, and it's too bad because now we've got this going on in California, and if they don't stop it in that state, it'll spread across the country. Michelle Obama also saying there are two clear choices in this election. There's John McCain. And then there's Barack Obama, the other guy. Barack believes that we must fight for the world as it should be, a world where together we work to reverse discriminatory laws like DOMA and don't ask, don't tell. A world where LGBT Americans get a fair shake at working hard to get ahead without workplace discrimination. 
a world where our federal government fully protects all of us, including LGBT Americans, from hate crimes, and a world where our federal laws don't discriminate against same-sex relationships, including equal treatment for any relationship recognized under state law. I believe what the homosexual agenda does is elevate the personal desires of a certain segment of the culture who are basing their identity on sinful behavior, and we'll talk about that later, versus what's good for the culture and God's plan for the family, which is actually serves the culture well when it's left intact. There are many cases in which the government has to step in when family breaks down. Now, John McCain's website reads this. The family represents the foundation of Western civilization and civil society, and John McCain believes the institution of marriage is a union between one man and one woman. It is only this definition that sufficiently recognizes the vital and unique role played by mothers and fathers in the raising of children and the role of the family in shaping, stabilizing, and strengthening communities in our nation. Here again is Michelle Obama, this time assuring the Democratic National Committee's Gay and Lesbian Leadership Committee of Barack Obama's endorsement of their agenda. Barack has made crystal clear his commitment to ensuring full equality for LGBT couples. That's why he supports robust civil unions. That is why he has said that the federal government should not stand in the way of the state's that want to decide for themselves how best to pursue equality for gay and lesbian couples, whether that means a domestic partnership, civil union, or civil marriage. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, the passage of Scripture that Barack Obama says is obscure in Romans 1 says in verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to their vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use For what is against nature, likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. I think this passage really emphasizes the fact that homosexuality and that behavior is a rejection of God's plan to the extent that we put it into our public policy. We are in this country rejecting God. You've been listening to Jerry Johnson Live, a Christian worldview radio show. Join Dr. Jerry Johnson, president of Criswell College and Criswell Communications, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. for an hour of relevant discussion of news and culture from a Christian perspective.